For those who fish, this is the Drake cast. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. Close to each other again. Yeah, Rex, you want to... What do you think? Can you hear it? Yeah. Should I talk up? Okay. Cheers. Well, cool. This is us running down. Um, what's the date today? April 11. And when did we all meet each other? It was what the 18th January, 17th, something like that. Uh, yeah. Middle of January, somewhere in there. And where did we meet? Oh God, was it? It was Cheech's Taco Shop, right? That's right. <laughs> Somewhere in Denver? Yeah, some good-ass tacos. But why did we meet? <laughs> to work together on the Fly Fishing Film Tour. And that's what we've been doing for the last, what, almost three months now. Jeez, man, yeah, it's gone by quick. Let's just start it out at the top. Hey, folks, welcome back to the Drake Cast. My tenure as a roadie on the Fly Fishing Film Tour has officially come to an end. While it was a fun run, it's good to be back on the mic. What you just heard is a couple of other folks as well. You've met them before. We have Rex Messing. <laughs> oh god, that's gonna be a tough one. And Paul Nicoletti. Oh, right in here. Oh, dude. That's that good water. Oh, here we go. Oh, yo, 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 back it up that way. Oh my god. Oh. Mm. No, I just... I got nervous. You heard from these guys in episode number 28, big and horny in Montana. They too were on the fly fishing film tour. And they're with us today because as a group, we decided it might be fun to relive our time on the road. But this isn't just gonna be us rehashing inside jokes. We decided to do this for a few reasons. One, these guys are fun and people seem to like listening to them and their stories. And two, while we were on the road, I managed to record a whole bunch of good stuff. On the water audio from a slew of rivers across the country, interviews with interesting innovators in the industry, and stories from just plain old folks we met along the way. And I'm pretty sure that embedding these micro stories into the larger narrative of the tour is just an easy way to get all of the information that we've collected out there. So here we go. Like Rex said at the beginning, we all met in January. From there... Yeah, it was what, like three days worth of packing, two days worth of packing? Just organizing stuff in the office before we actually got off on the road. From Boulder, we had, what, like four days to get up to the world premiere of the 2018 F3T in Bozeman? Yeah, man. And what'd we do in the meantime? Man, we <laughs> we kind of took our sweet time. Um, first, we made it to the Bighorn, which is pretty pretty awesome. Got a chance to stay at the Bighorn Angler, and they hooked us up with uh, our own like large cabin, pretty much. So we had our own bed. Had some pretty epic fishing. Oh, that was a fish! I got this! Yeah! Dude, give me that, give me that first fish stream of fish of the year. Yeah. Look at that dude, dude. Yeah, which 
people heard about in the episode <laughs> Big and Horny in Montana. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we nearly got blown off the road a couple times going through Wyoming. But yeah, the Big Horn was sick. It was, what, two days of fishing? Then that float that you guys heard about was crazy. Crazy, crazy. And from the Big Horn, we then went up, went to Bozeman, cruised over to the Bozeman. Yeah, man, because when we got to Bozeman, we had a lot of things to kind of kind of do. It was a world premiere, so we ended up going to going to Sims, and we had that really badass tour with Rich and Connor. Got to see kind of the production behind the waiters that we've been dragging around across the country. And remember how at the top I said we'd be splicing in tape from on the road? Well, here's an opportunity to do so. Like Rex said, we had the privilege of touring the Sims production facility just outside of Bozeman, Montana. So we are walking through the Sims factory, and uh, we got maybe 40 people working at a variety of sewing machines. Lots of thread, lots of compressed air tubes coming down, because it looks like everything runs off of compressed air, and... So one of the reasons you can make, you make waders here is because if you're making a shirt, your cost, your biggest cost on making a shirt is labor. Right, and that's why most of them are made overseas, because the cost of labor is so much less. We're able to build waders here in part because the cost of the fabric is actually such a large component of the, of the price of building a waiter. And the materials are so expensive, so the, the, the equation basically gets inverted, if you will. Yeah. Each one of these is cut out by hand, and uh, they make sure that they, as Connor said before, they don't make mistakes. So um, I've asked them before, like, how often do you just like, and they're like, no, you don't go. Er, yeah, because that's like $10,000 or whatever it is, you know. So most of all the people live right here, centrally located in the Gallatin Valley in Bozeman here, and uh, you know, mo a good portion of them fish, and, and a lot of them fish a lot, and, and especially in key positions here, they're, they're hardcore anglers, and there's a huge amount of pride, both from the angler perspective and just from the craftsman's perspective, on making sure that, that we have a very, very low fail rate. So when you open up a box of Sims waders for the first time, or you're fishing with it for the 120th time, you can rely on that quality. Built waders here for a really long time, so there's a lot of really cool personal stories here on the floor. All this stuff is, is cut to size and stamped out right here, and then she's gonna line them up and tape them down, right? And then she can use this press here and here, pressure down, and the heat's gonna activate that adhesive, and then she can turn it around, lock it in with some cooling, so that's gonna be bonded for the lifetime of that waiter. So this is where they're basically putting together all of the all of the major the big panels of the Gore-Tex in order to make the, the make the waiter here. And then they're gonna sew them with this super, super stout thread. So those seams aren't gonna fail at all. It's basically starting to look like a pair of pants, right? One thing you notice that obviously it's not a gore, it's not a waterproof garment yet, and that's because it's not been seam taped. Basically what's gonna happen is they're gonna put this they're gonna put all of these seams right over the roller there. And there's a roll of tape, you can see that, that green tape right there. That's gonna get pushed down. There's a heating element underneath there that's gonna heat the, heat the adhesive on the back of that tape. It's gonna roll down, and she's gonna go over every single one of these seams on this waiter. We need to go over every single one of those intersection points in this cross patching. Here's where we do the testing. We'll test, we'll test three times a day to make sure that these are creating a perfectly waterproof seal. So these are all really good right here. Okay, uh, I don't know if you want me to bring this up, but I see fail right Oh, there right is here. one fail. Yeah, so you can see right here, this started to get a little bit weaker here. See how strong that is? So this one started to get weaker. That's a good good catch there. And so this one, they would go and they would work on that machine and say, well, what's going on with that? And so the, the upper garment made of Gore-Tex um, is, is gonna mesh with that neoprene stocking foot. And then we're also gonna integrate the gravel guards at this step right here. So 
And then is there a guy with like a dunk take back here that puts every pair on and jumps exactly. in and sits exactly. there? Yeah. That would be much, much better. So this is our testing beds here. So the, water, the waders are filled with water, inclined at a certain angle for a certain amount of time. And then they're just tested, to, visually tested to see that there's no water leaking. So then once that's done, they're all hung up here on this rack. And then that's what all those blowers are doing. They're just drying them out. So I think that the G4Z is our most labor intensive wader. It's the best wader in the world. And I think that's handled by 29 different people in the whole process of, of making a Sims waders. And so here, once they're dry, they're getting folded military style very, very precisely. And then they're put in these boxes right here and sent into our warehouse and shipped around the world. So uh, on a given day, thank you. How many waders are you guys cranking out? We crank a lot. We don't devolve, we don't, uh, tell the number precisely, but uh, you can be rest assured that we're making quite a few. Yeah. Cool. That is, that is the number one asked question though. I'm sure. Yeah. After seeing everything that went into each pair of Sims waders, I decided to call up an old timer to hear what waders were like before Sims. Hello. Hey, is this Don? Yeah, it is, and are you back? This is Elliot, once again, bothering you. You've met Don before. He's the fly fishing pastor and father from episode number 22. A river runs near it. When did you get your first pair of waders? Oh, geez, I think, uh, well, see, I started actually fishing kind of late because I was uh, in my 30s. So that would have been, oh, what, uh, 1970, somewhere in there like that. We started out with marathon waders. Those were kind of rubberized. But the reason we did that is because they, they made a lot of mistakes when they were making them. You could get them as seconds. You could get them, you know, cheap. So we would get them at uh, basements in Wausau, Wisconsin. And so that was the first waders that we used. And they were heavy. Uh, they were clumsy. They put up a lot of resistance to the water. Uh, they leak like hell, <laughs> you know. And then we went to the next generation that I used was... Uh, were sealed dries, which were like rubber. I mean, they were, we used to call them body condoms because they were, they were just like, you know, just a rubber, a rubber suit. The thing about those though, you could duct tape them. When they leaked, you could put duct tape on them. I mean, I could never have gotten through any kind of security in an airport. I had so much duct tape on some of my waiters, but the bad thing on those was uh, when I was guiding, we, my drift boat had rope seats. And so you'd sit on a rope seat, a hemp seat all day and rub on it and you rub the butt right out of them. So they, they leaked in strange, they used to leak in the, in the butt of the waiter because you'd just, you know, rub a hole in them. And then we went to the next, the next generation, I think were called Rangers or something like that. And they were kind of a more of a plastic cloth, uh, but they leaked on the seams cause they never got the seams right on those. And, uh, and then eventually, eventually, you know, the waders evolved into the advent of uh, Gore-Tex Gore or some early kinds of Gore-Tex. But in my memory, uh, one of the problems with the Gore-Tex was it was such, uh, you know, such a uh, thin fabric that, uh, you, you know, you, when you walk into the, to the creek or the stream, you know, you go through any kind of berries, you'd have all these little pinhole leaks. Eventually, you know, eventually, uh, and I think Sims, Thanks to Sims, they were the, the people that I think really uh, were the gift of guides. When did you get your first pair of waders that was like, oh, this is how a waiter should be? Like, what year do you think that was? 
Oh, geez, I don't know. Uh, that would be probably, I'm trying to think now, uh, probably in the 80s. I would imagine in the 80s. I can remember I bought him through, uh, I, was, I was guiding for Mike Lawson at the time, and I bought him through Mike, and they were Sims. I remember that. Yeah, that was that would have been in the late 80s. But, I mean, it was it was amazing, the difference then. Just the ease with which you could wade, and you didn't have all that resistance to the water, and the flexibility that you have in waders now versus what we used to have. My my wife always, you know, she, she used to say, you know, the, thank God that the people that make uh, waders uh, are not the same people that make condoms or would have, you know, a population boom you couldn't beat because, you know, they leaked all over the place in those days. In addition to keeping anglers around the world dry, Sims also takes great pride in the fact that they make their waders in the United States. However, not every Sims product is made right there in-house. And to find out why Sims chooses to make some waders here but not others, I asked Diane Bristol to sit down to help explain these things. If we could just start by you stating your name and who you are within this company and where we are. Sure. Uh, My name is Diane Bristol. Currently, I'm the Senior Director of Employee and Community Engagement. I actually joined the company prior to Casey Walsh acquiring it from LifeLink International, so I joined in 88. That was in Jackson, Wyoming, where Sims was founded. How long has Sims been making waders in the U.S. then? So Sims entered the waiter market. They were number two. And uh, John Sims, so a little history on him, he was a professional fishing guide in the summer and a ski patroller in the winter in Jackson. Very creative. So he wanted to make uh, the experience for his clients better or um, on the ski patrol side, try and find people faster um, on the hill. So he would come up with these creative, innovative ideas He pulled together a team of product people in Jackson that helped him to come to the market with the second neoprene waiter, but he really moved the needle. That was about 1982. Then he sold the company um, to a gentleman named John Krisik, and so worked with W.L. Gore and the makers of Gore-Tex fabric, and that really led to the first Gore-Tex waiter that actually launched after Casey Walsh acquired the company. So the first thing that we did as Sims Fishing Products was ship out Gore-Tex waiters. And um, so we've been making waiters ever since. So we're the first company to launch that waterproof breathable technology. And we're one of two Gore-Tex certified waiter manufacturers in the world. You've been with the company since 88. How long has Sims been manufacturing waders in the United States? Uh, They actually, when they launched them in 82, that was the start of wader manufacturing in the U.S. And um, the initial run of Gore-Tex waders in about the first year was not made um, in the Sims manufacturing facility because we had to get our Gore-Tex license and certification. Um, But at the point we did, then we took that over totally and have been doing it ever since. And why? Why do you guys choose to make waders in the U.S.? Well, several reasons. The most important is that um, there's a lot of innovation that you can do when your manufacturing facility is downstairs of your headquarters. Um, A lot of times if you use a vendor that's not your own, 
they will try and tweak the design for manufacturer to make it the most efficient and move through the most product. We want to make the best waiter for the intended use. And so having the team downstairs helps us be more creative. It helps us um, bring things to market that probably wouldn't be done without a lot of pain and suffering if we were to try and do it outside of the U.S. We also understand that it you don't have to be an avid angler to understand if your waders are leaking. So for us, quality is the most important thing. And when we do it here, we follow the quality throughout the production process. So we know when we ship it out, it's not going to leak. We also get great input from the team downstairs that's working on the waders, our production team. They understand what things can be adjusted to make it even better than what the designers and developers have identified. And then also understanding that uh, made in the U.S. is pretty important to us. And if we, if we can bring more things back to the U.S., we really hope to do that. So here in this factory, the G4 mm-hmm. whole line, the G3 line, yep. um, what other weight leaders are made Head, here? Headwaters. Anything that utilizes Gore-Tex fabric is made in this facility. And, and one final reason we make it here is that the Gore-Tex fabric is more expensive than any other waterproof breathable fabric. So for us, um, the cost of the fabric is a large portion of the overall cost of the waiter. So it doesn't save us money to go do that overseas with what others might consider less expensive labor. We want to make it here. So all Gore-Tex waiters are made in this facility, including the kids' Gore-Tex waiters. And so that leaves out the freestones, which are then manufactured overseas. And yep. you, you stated that it's about IP, it's about quality control. What are the thoughts on manufacturing the freestones overseas then? Yep. So anything that's made with our Torre fabric or with Torre fabric, that is also a waterproof breathable fabric, um, those are made overseas. And the reason that we chose to make that split is because currently from a capacity standpoint, we can't push all of those through our manufacturing facility. So from our seat, Uh, we determined that we wanted to be able to offer um, a broader range of weighting products. And in order to do that, we had to explore another manufacturer. And, you know, as I said, if we can grow our capacity here in Bozeman, we will explore doing more products here. That that would be kind of the the goal. Yep. This might be too in-depth with the company, but the Freestones are the lowest price waiter that you guys offer, correct? I think we have a Blackfoot waiter right now that um, we are offering, and there's a couple more in the product line that we're looking at introducing that are a lower price point. Okay. Yeah. Could you hit that price point if things were manufactured in the U.S.? Depends on the capacity flow. Um, you know, if we were taking guide waiters or G3 or any of the Gore-Tex waiters off of the production line to to move these through, we would really have to evaluate um, what we would be doing from a needs perspective. Granted, this doesn't address the fact that the factory floor isn't in operation for 14 plus hours of the day, and that in terms of logistical floor space, there could be the potential to expand operations in the U.S. So the potential is there for sure, Um, but if you 
if you build products that um, don't have as many design details or innovations, then you would decrease the overhead. For us, it's just knowing from a capacity standpoint, how are we gonna impact the availability of our Cortex waiters? There's a lot of proponents of the current tax bill that say it's going to encourage companies to repatriate jobs to the U.S. Is Sims considering doing so, and are, are you guys impacted by this tax bill that's being proposed? Well, as we are able to expand the production team, we will focus on products that we want to bring back. We'll likely focus on more t technical manufacturing because that's what we do best. And, and ideally, you make stuff that you are experts in producing. Um, so, you know, will we make socks here? No, probably not. Um, will we make, um, you know, probably not shirts, right? But if it is a super technical shirt, maybe. Um, but we want to we be experts in really technical manufacture. It's not for every product, right? There are a lot of things that cost a lot of money to manufacture. Um, but if we can help people bring jobs back here, if we can employ more people in Bozeman, then that's a good thing for everyone. And we actually source a lot of products, or we target to source products that are made in the U.S. We have a, a vendor here in Bozeman um, that makes our nippers and our guide lanyards and things like that. So our global sourcing doesn't mean that we don't look right at our neighbors. So um, it's important. There's nothing that we don't come to the table and explore what are our options for something that's made in the U.S. And not to talk smack about the other guys, but are you aware of any other waiter manufacturers that make their products in the U.S.? Well, there are no others because we're the only fishing waiter made in the U.S. But this point right here is a big one. While Sims may not be making all or even the majority of its products in the United States, hardly anyone else is making any of their products here. And for that, Sims deserves some recognition. But that doesn't mean that there isn't room for improvement. But the Sims story isn't quite over yet. I got to pick up a new pair of waiters. So yeah, pretty they were pretty, they were, <laughs> yeah, you should tell them that story, man, because that was they were all pretty freaking crazy about that. They were like, wait, what, what's the craziest story that you've heard about, you know, a pair of waiters getting torn up and, and Rex happened to be one of, one of the craziest stories. <laughs> Can you tell the story? Because I have the shop guy the way to repair service telling his <laughs> side of the story. So sure. can you tell your Yeah, side? so this is up in Alaska, previous summer, and this was uh, my first year up there. So we were running a bunch of new rivers, obviously for me, but there was a river in particular that was kind of a feeder creek of one of the places we went to pretty frequently that we'd heard held a bunch of fish, but hadn't really seen for ourselves. So we decided to go check out this creek. So we had jet boats and we'd been running for a while. I was super comfortable with it at that point, but the kind of the rule of thumb is in water that you're not familiar with, take it slow so you have power to kind of kind of punch through anything that's bad. So can you just describe like what this creek looks like, like with it's a really, really small, uh, really shallow and a lot of really tight turns with a bunch of wood in it. So we had no idea what we were driving up into. So so the other guide I'm with, he ran up it, no problem. And there's this weird little funnel point right in the mouth. So you get up this flat and then it kind of and it goes right up against the bank. So Mitch goes up it fine, kind of gets close to the bank, but doesn't have, have any problems. I kind of look at it and see what Mitch does, and basically follow the exact same path. But as I get up into the turn, 
I let off power because I kind of see that I have to make another sharp cut. And as I did so, the, the current, as it's going around one of these little S's, pushed me basically into the bank. So as I was going into it, the back end of the boat slowly swung further and further into the bank. And right in this bottleneck, there's a big ass log sticking straight off the bank. And it's like, like freshly fallen tree. So I'm watching as our boat kind of slides slowly and slowly closer into this log thinking, shit, we're going to get really close. I should just let off the power. And so both my clients, they kind of just brushes past both of them. The second one who was sitting in front of me kind of had to brush the log aside because it's basically like over the boat at this point. And so he brushes it aside and it kind of slings into me and being the dumbass that I am, rather than just trying to step around it, I grabbed onto it thinking I, it, like the boat momentum would just keep going forward and it eventually would snap. So it kind of caught me straight in the midriff, got stuck in my pocket, and we, the boat just keeps going forward, keeps going forward. The log, <laughs> the log just loads up. And before I know it, I'm getting shit whip catapulted off the back of the jet boat. So <laughs> I'm flopping in the water, kind of stuck on this stick as the boat's like, I don't know, 15 feet ahead of me idling, stand up, shred my waders, cause I'm still kind of stuck on it, get my feet under me and stand. And so it rips the entire front pouch of my waders off. I lose pliers, all sorts of shit. And <laughs> my clients are freaking out up in front of me, uh, like telling me, like trying to figure out how to turn off the engine, eventually kill it. So we get the boat back on shore, kind of looking at everything. And I'm kind of, I'm surprised I'm not even hurt to be completely honest, but all that ended up happening was the entire front half of my waders get completely shredded off. So it's like a third of it's dangling off. I basically I wore duct tape for the remainder of the season because I couldn't get a new pair in time. So send it into Sims. Yeah. Do you remember coming across those waders? Yeah, we came across them. Uh, Pete, one of the repair techs, opened the box and just immediately dropped them on the floor and walked in here and was like, hey man, you gotta come see these waders. Uh, and I walk in and it's a pair of, pair of G4s that are like in decent shape, but the pocket has like duct tape residue all over the whole thing. And I was like, man, I gotta call this guy and see what's going on. Like he destroyed these waders somehow. And I called him. And I get a phone call. He's like, so, so what happened here? Because this isn't very normal and what's with all the tape? It's like, well... I was like, hey man, just want to let you know we just got your waders. We haven't tested them for leaks or anything, but... I'm gonna be upfront with you, they're pretty trashed. Like, what What the hell happened to these things? Um, and he's like, yeah, you know, wasn't sure if you'd be able to fix them or not. It's probably not a warranty issue. Like, so here's what happened. Like, came around this corner really quick, kind of had to jump out of the boat and like just caught a stick on the pocket and just ripped the whole thing off. He's like, but I'm up in Alaska to keep guiding. So I just threw duct tape on it and like kept going and just use them for the rest of the season, just like as they were. And I was like, okay, man, like, well, we can't fix it. That's for sure, but we'll see what we can do. Um, and if I remember correctly, we ended up, like we ended up hooking it up for him um, and setting him up with some new waders. Cause the waders themselves were still in good shape. He took care of them, you know, they lasted a season in Alaska. We just, we just hooked it up with some new waders and was like, next time you jump out of a jet boat, like keep your pockets closed so I can't get caught on anything. And we'll be good to go from there. But yeah, they it was apparently one of the more notable uh, waiter repairs that they had over the last couple of years. Have you run across any other good ones that you've been sharing with me? We had one, it was a 
G4 waiter, G4Z waiter, and a G4 jacket. And a shop up in um, BC sent it in to us. Um, and he wrote a little note and was like, just you know, call me before you do anything with these. And we open it up and the whole one pocket of the G4 is blown out and burnt. And the inside of the jacket is shredded and burnt. And so we called him and I guess the dude had in his pocket, they call it like a bear banger. So it's like basically a 12 gauge shell that you like pop off when bears come at you or whatever. So the dude had it in his pocket and it went off and thankfully like went to shoot out, but it just destroyed his waders, like brand new waders he just bought at the shop, brand new jacket. Um, but so working with the shop up there, we were able to, to work something out with him and get him taken care of. But yeah, there's some people send in some crazy stuff. So shout out to the people at Sims. Thank you. So if you'd like to invest in a pair of American-made water trousers with the kind of customer service that will help you out even if you make a pretty colossal mistake, check out Sims. But make sure to get one of their Gore-Tex waders. All right, back to the rundown. Then we had uh, the world premiere. Yeah, man. How are you guys doing? Woo! Look at this 4 o'clock show. Thank you guys so much for coming out and joining us this afternoon. We're fired up to be here uh, in our first week of shows on the 2018 Fly Fishing Film Tour. Uh, don't tell anybody outside of this town. This is our favorite stop on the tour. And uh, we are so glad you guys could come join us. Thank you guys so much. Let's go ahead and kick this thing off. Enjoy real one of the Fly Fishing Film Tour. Thanks so much for coming out. But before we can hear stories from the actual tour, a quick break. Many thanks to the folks at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures for their continued support of the Drake Cast. Can you say your name and where we are? Yeah, my name's Carter Lyles. We're at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures, Bozeman, Montana. A cold, snowy day here. Just showing all the fly fishing film tour guys around the office and talking to the Drake Cast. What do you like about working here? Uh, I just love the, the dynamic and everybody's just we're all anglers, we're all hardcore anglers, and it's so authentic because we have a team that is compiled of some of the greatest guides in the country and lodge managers and so on and so on. So I think it's the team that really makes working here so fun. And Carter happens to be one of those world-class guides now employed by Yellow Dog. Where were you before working here? I was at Trout Hunter Lodge on the Henry's Fork. What uh, what'd you like about that place? It's the Henry's Fork, the ranch. Um, the ranch is such a special place. Uh, the hatches, they bring anglers around from all over the world. And just being in the greater Yellowstone area too, I mean, you had access to the Madison, you had access to the park. So the fishing opportunities were endless. All of the folks at Yellow Dog take the passion that they have for fishing and just apply it to your upcoming trip. Fly fish the world with the pros at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. We're also sponsored by Scott Fly Rods. While at a fly show a few weeks back, I ran into a Scott Fly Rods super fan, Theo Annis. So Scott Fly Rods for me, uh, I've seen it from every level of the rod sales process as both a retailer, uh, having owned a fly shop, and now from the sales uh, representative side. You know, what first drew me to Scott was that it really was a homegrown product. When you hear made in America, we think, okay, great, yeah, that's a nice thing, but you know, what I encourage people to do is actually go see Made in America. When you go into that factory, cutting graphite from flat sheets 
all the way to the final signature on the rod is a handmade custom rod in a production environment. I just think that that gets somewhat lost until you actually go and see it. And as an angler who lives in Colorado, I like Scott because you know these rods, especially for trout fishing, are tested on our local waters. I've always just had a place in my heart for Scott, so. You're just saying who you are and what you do with Scott? Yeah, I'm Theo Anist. I'm a Southern Rocky sales representative. I get to sell awesome fly rods every day. Good stuff, man. Granted, Theo gets paid to say that, and I suppose indirectly I do as well. But even if we weren't, we'd still tell you that Scott makes some badass fly chucking devices. Check them out at their factory in Montrose, at your local fly shop, or scottflyrod.com. Okay, back to Rex and Paul and their experience on the fly fishing film tour. Bozeman. Bozeman was awesome. Both sh both uh, shows were sold out, I believe. Yeah, I think we had, what, like 1,500? So, I mean, it was just a sick show. We are finally starting things off and actually getting into it and seeing, seeing the show in action, so yeah. super cool. It's also cool that a lot of the shows that they invite conservation groups to set up booths so that if you're interested in, like, say you aren't a TU member, you can go and talk to those guys or, like... Backcountry hunters and anglers. They were at a ton of shows. Yeah. They were at a ton. Trout Unlimited was at a ton. Uh, we had Project Healing Waters at a good amount of them. Casting for Recovery is another one. That was there a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, it was great. I mean, you see all these different conservation groups kind of working locally throughout the country, which is super cool. Bighorn Alliance is one that was even made a film that was in it. Uh, so yeah, it was super cool being able to see kind of the kind of the pockets of different conservation groups and what they're trying to do locally and then getting worked into the fold with us. So they gain more exposure. We get to talk a little bit about what they're doing. So I think I think personally one of my favorite things about being on the you know, working with the fly fishing film tour is that we are kind of like this vessel for conservation. Like we, you know, we're not necessarily doing any of that work ourselves, but we get to not only have these conserva conservation groups come from these local communities and interact p with people they normally don't, but it's kind of like this cool common ground for people that are into fishery science, that are biologists, people that are in conservation groups, and people that just like to get out there and fish and use the resources. So it's kind of like this cool place where everyone can come together and drink a bunch of beer <laughs> and enjoy a bunch of films. Yeah, it's a really unique space within the fly fishing world because you go to your TU meeting and it's more structured or like pig farm, which has gotten huge lately, which is awesome. Um, you know, it's all about tying and that stuff. But this is, you can come and watch the films and have a great time. You can come and just hang out with other people who are really into this thing that you're passionate about and maybe a lot of your friends aren't, but you're just surrounded by good fishing energy, as lame as that sounds. I, I think it's pretty rare. With very few people trying to sell you things. You know, yeah. you go to a fly fishing show and like... <laughs> Other than us. <laughs> yeah. We, we were minimal on the sales. So, no. from Bozeman, we went over to Billings, did a quick show there. Billings show was really good. I really liked the Billings show. Yeah, moving on, we were excited to go fish the Missouri. Had you guys fished it before? You, yeah, Paul's fished it a bunch. I've fished it a handful of times, so really not, definitely not in that scenario, not like really late winter. I mean, it was super warm. Uh, but it was, yeah, end of January. We had a decent idea what we wanted to do as far as a section we'd float, but went into the shop, talked with the local guy there, and he put us on a section just above... Wolf Creek, actually, down to Craig, two miles below Holter Dam. 
Yeah, definitely no secret either, so. No, definitely not. Not a a spot burn, whoever gets mad at us for that. (laughs) It was awesome. Obviously, tailwater, winter fishery, you're throwing a lot of really small midges, uh, sow bugs, the kind of standard Missouri winter fare, but first day, really windy, got blown all over the river just trying to figure out what was actually fishing well. Because, yeah, just for those not familiar with it, the Missouri is a super wide river. It's, it's pretty hard to read as well. Yeah, extremely hard to read. I, it's it's got to be like on an average 100 yards wide probably. Yeah. And it looks more or less featureless. And the game in the winter is finding the two seams in the middle of the river that all the fish are sitting behind. If you find those seams, you're going to catch fish. But for people like us that are just showing up on, on the off day, it made it tough. But we did well that first day. I mean, the second day was a lot better. But yeah. <laughs> And we actually found some some back channels that that really produce for us. Yeah, because rather than fishing a river that was 100 yards wide, we were fishing like a small stream that was maybe 10 yards wide that was just a section of the river. It was a braid. Right. And we could then break that down. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it just became a lot more... We became a lot more comfortable as stuff we're used to. You can kind of read the water for what it is, find riffle sections, find buckets. It made it a lot more comfortable for us, and we found a lot of fish in a couple spots. <laughs> I mean, there were a couple holes where we got like 15 fish, probably. Big, healthy rainbows, whereas on the bighorn, mixture of browns and rainbows that were all pretty darn skinny. But these, yeah, we, we landed quite a few fish over 20. We did. And yeah. it, it wasn't until that the last 30, 40 minutes of the last day that uh, I decided to throw on a small streamer and then... I got really pissed at myself because the streamer fishing was pretty incredible and I had waited so long to actually give it a shot. So. And notable there, the last bank that we're fishing, a hundred, probably a hundred yards up from the boat ramp, Paul hooks one of his many huge, huge fish <laughs> that ended up being 16 inches. But since- truck, truck the fly. <laughs> anyone, of, every, anyone that would have felt that, that fish hit that streamer would have been just completely crazy about it. Smashed it. Anyways, sent the boat into a panic, and we managed to step on the anchor release and, and did not step off of the anchor release, so... I like that you included the royal we, but <laughs> it was more of a less royal me that stepped on the anchor release. <laughs> I wasn't pointing fingers, but it, it might have been Elliot that was on the oars at the time. Yeah, I mean, we were taking photos and like looking over at the bank being like, shit, are we still moving? And next thing you know, there's no anchor rope in the, in the boat anymore. So, so if anyone is uh, floating the uh, Missouri River, I would make sure that you check river left before the Craig uh, put in takeout, and you might find yourself a uh, hundred dollar anchor. Real nice anchor. Real nice anchor. <laughs> nice carabiner on there too. Pretty pretty good rope as well. Good oh, rope. Yeah. Oh yeah, Great solid rope. rope. <laughs> so from there, we cruised. Where'd we go? Missoula? Missoula. And why was that a special show? Personally, for me, I went to school in Missoula, and uh, Rex and I work with a, a lot of people that are, um, in Alaska that are from Montana, uh, including one of our main bosses, Ryan Thompson, also known as RT. Um, so being in Missoula itself is pretty crazy. Uh, it's just one of our, our more wild shows. Um, but we also had uh, Chuck Reagan from the first film in the F3T series of 2018 called Landsick. 
Uh, so he came out and not only did he play at our show for us, but he also did an after party. Long water Say those are some of the reasons that was particularly unique. That city has six fly shops, maybe, like a resident population of 33,000, I think, and 1,500 people came out to it. Like one of the biggest double feature shows we have. I think it is the biggest. It's just a really fishy town, so the vibes there were awesome. Everyone was really charged up to be at the show and see it. Again, same type of deal as Bozeman. Four o'clock was a little more timid. The eight o'clock was just straight up rowdy. I remember talking to Doug who was there and there was just so much energy in the crowd and we were talking, he's like, you know, this crowd could turn on us, you know, like they get mad about something, they could start throwing chairs, you know, like it just had that like communal energy of, luckily it was all for being stoked about fishing, but you see how that could turn into breaking windows and like burning down McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, that was the start of a riot right there. So from there, cruise to Spokane had a great time at Dry Fly Distilling. Um, showed up there, they're friends with folks at the tour and just took awesome care of us. Put on a great show in Spokane, which is a totally underrated town. Oh, definitely. They have, so underrated. They have three great YMCAs for anyone interesting, all of which have sauna, pool, a steam room, and whirlpool. So just keep that in mind. Shout out to Josh Mills for a nice hookup. Yeah, Josh Mills too. based out of Spokane, Washington. I mean, that dude hooked us up last spring when we were going to go fish the Olympic Peninsula. And again, I mean, you guys have been literally having, you've had a text message thread with him for like pretty much since we've left Spokane. <laughs> yeah, and uh, while we were at the Spokane show, I managed to talk with Josh a little bit and he gave us some bugs. So right here, I'm going to insert some of that conversation. So this is uh, Josh Mills of, uh, I think he works for iHeartRadio or something like that, but he's a big um, proponent of the Wild Steelhead Coalition and huge steelhead fishermen. So here's a little bit of that conversation. Purple. Oh, these are sexy. Can you just describe yeah, a couple of these flies? Sure. I just, you know, it's some of the things I don't really follow a specific pattern because I get too ADD at the vice and I try to have too many, um, I have too much materials. I'm just kind of sitting in my little cave at home and uh, whether it's a little bit of flash or a little bit of Rhea or Marabou or whatever, I just have an obsession with steelhead flies pretty much. You look good. <laughs> you look great, man. Oh no! All right, let's just be real here. We're not, you we're can't not, just pick all the ones you want first, like we did last time. Well, one, we're not taking them yet. <laughs> That's fine. You can just, and then I can, you know, I can always just send them to you whenever you want. Well, so we're one doing. One of my biggest bows this year in Alaska on the swing came on one of your bugs. No! Yeah. Yes. Dude, it was like the coolest yes! thing fish ever. Yeah. It was it was like a, like 22 inch we bow did. that took me to my backing swinging. When, when you surround yourself with a bunch of degenerate fly tires and we all just are like scoping trying to find the better thing that sits better. This particular hook as you can see the down the eye is not as upturned as right. an owner. So it has more of a flat bend on it mm -hmm. and it's got like and it just sits better in a tube. And so you don't miss the nibs. You can't miss the nibs, man. Oh lord. Man. Is that a hubcap on there? That's, that's what I'm trying to figure out, <laughs> man. It's my spinners. No, it's, uh, that's a, I think it's a pro tube uh, catch at the end of it. I try to, you know, implement and, and, and go back and, and, and take a lot of that classic stuff because there's a lot of history, I think, that lives on through our flies. 
And then there's other times where, you know, we're talking about alchemy at this point because we've got a lot of tinsel and half a chicken and getting juiced up. <laughs> From there. We did West Seattle, yep. right? So we did Spokane, West Seattle, Seattle. In three days. In three days, right? And then we did Portland like two days later. Yeah. I just remember a couple of the guys who showed up early for the West Seattle show were two Washington State fisheries biologists who focused on steelhead and salmon. Um, and I just sat down and had like a 15 minute conversation with them about why the runs are so low, especially throughout Oregon this year, and like what's gonna happen with the Atlantic salmon net pen spill and those fish getting up the Skagit and things like that. And so once again, you show up at these things like expecting to put on a movie and you end up learning a lot and meeting some really interesting people that you otherwise probably would never have had FaceTime with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's been an area that I've been super interested in. Paul and I, we fished the Olympic Peninsula last year. Um, so we got a taste of what all those people are obsessed about, and it's just really cool seeing some of the faces behind it. Even people that we've read about, um, seen photos of, to actually get to meet in person, it's like, it's cool. And from Seattle, cruised down to Portland, but along the way, you two and RT hopped off and dropped the boat in a river that runs to the coast and fished for some steelhead. Tell us about that little float. Southern Washington on an unnamed river uh, that's definitely named. We saw a lot of boats. Um, yeah, we'd, we'd gotten word that there were steelhead moving through it. Um, and it was pretty much a sprint drive for us to basically squeeze in a half day float. Uh, so we really didn't know what to expect getting there. Talked to a couple boats that had landed some hatchery fish, but we struck out. Uh, but just really, it was great being in steelhead waters. We caught a lot of smaller fish. Finally got, got some two hand rods back in our hands. So that was nice. Uh, yeah, it was just great being out in the water, particularly it was our first chance to fish with one of our bosses, which was cool because Paul and I, we fish together a ton. So we know, know what to expect fishing together, but it was a whole different dynamic to kind of fish with someone who's in charge of you. Yeah. It's really nice also to just have, have those days of fishing in between putting on the shows because, you know, you interact with so many people and you hear about fishing and you get so many people excited about it. And it's really nice to kind of get that refresher where you get to go spend a half day in the water. I mean, it's just rejuvenating and just gets you super excited to go to the next show and keep on putting on these uh, awesome events. While you guys fished, I had to do some work, so I went into a little greasy spoon where I met a couple dudes who had been steelhead fishing with bait for the last like 40 years out there. And they had just gotten off the water and I chatted with them and may have surreptitiously recorded some of our conversations. Oh so. yeah! <laughs> so I'm gonna, right now I'm gonna play a little bit of that recording with these guys about why they love steelhead fishing. Have you guys been fishing around here a long time then? Oh yeah. 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 I've been doing this since the 90s. Why do you guys do it? What do you like about the water? Why are you guys coming out here and still doing this? Even though it's no good. It's therapy. Oh yeah, you can't. That and the, the, it is something about when it. When you see those fish, when you hook them, and you're seeing them do that flip flop in that clear water, and there's nothing better, dude. Nothing. 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 When I hooked the fish this morning, I wasn't even paying attention. I saw a silver flash. I looked and my rod just slows up. And I hooked into it, came right up next to the boat. We probably fought it for about four to five seconds. Yep. Um, from here to that table, flop, 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 bang. Flop, 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 bang. 
pop, 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 bang, and it came, and it went for one more dive and just went pop the line right off. But it was probably like a ten pound hen. There's nothing better, man. No, there ain't. It's crazy. I was pretty upset with it, but that's still have fish, and you get one bite, one yeah. chance a day. That's what you normally do is you fish for one bite a day. All my friends will look at me and think I'm fucking crazy. Yeah. Because I'll be like, yeah, I'm going to drive two hours, wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, we're going to go out there. I'm going to fish all day long and maybe catch one, and I'm going to come home and be happy about it. They're like, what? (laughs) Like, how does that... But there's something about it. Not a problem. You know, even though the winter run, you freeze your ass off, your eyelids are frozen, your hands are numb, and you just are miserable as all hell, but... But, I don't know. It's like a nice bright steelhead is just as good as like going out and shooting buck. Nope. Yeah. Something about it, yeah. I mean, I, I used to do all the duck hunting and everything, and it's definitely it's more more adrenaline than having a 20, 30 geese land on top of you. For sure. Because like you just don't know. You want to go fishing Monday? <laughs> I'm going to be down in Oregon. Oh, there you go. Otherwise, that's I'd... That's where I go on Tuesday for work. Did they catch anything? They had one on. Yeah, it sounded like pretty much par for the course for everyone on the water the last couple days there, but... Let's not forget that this was kind of the uh, very beginning of Rex's spending spree. I think Rex alone, probably on this entire tour, has dropped more than $1,500 in strictly flies, especially when it came <laughs> to the Pacific Northwest. As soon as he started looking at those big intruders and stuff... Uh, he just went wild. He just started buying flies and flies. Steelhead, steelhead bugs are hard for me to resist. It, we got a taste of steelhead fishing because basically that led straight into the Portland show and then we had five days off. And next week in our follow-up episode, you'll get to hear about those five days and many more in part two with Paul and Rex. We'll have an in-depth look at fishing the Oregon coast, hang out with a couple more familiar voices, and hear about some controversial stuff going on in the Midwest with the steelhead they have there. Thanks to everybody who participated in this episode. Keegan Lynch designed our logo. Our title track is Ain't It Sweet by Phil Cook. Thanks for listening. This has been the Drake Cast.